Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Mojiella Wodeal. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. Call the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, welcome back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me today, and I hope to only mispronounce your name four times today, Ruth, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who has written a book that we need to talk about, and we're going to talk to her a little bit more. It's called Strongman, and uh, it's been touted as a, a book that everyone who cares about American democracy should read. Um, so I, we're going to talk a little bit about the problems of authoritarianism, uh, Republican extremism, and the November general elections. Ruth, thank you for joining us. Sure, glad to be there. And Ruth, you'll stick by, we'll pay the bills, and we'll be right back. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content, not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, it's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With me now is Ruth Ben Giad, and she has written a book called Strongman. And she is also, well, Ruth, you, you, we can also see you on MSNBC. Uh, you are a, a teacher, and um, I love the part threats to democracy in your book. Um, I have not finished it, I have, uh, but I started it, and it was because of that I wanted to talk to you a little bit more. So I'll start by, in your book, you talk about the threats to democracy. So let me just be blunt. It's called Just Ask the Question, so I'll just ask you <laughs> the question. Do you think the Republicans, uh, as the president has said, are a threat to democracy in the United States? And if so, why? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if we didn't have January 6th, uh, that was a, I, see, I saw it the night it happened as a coup attempt, uh, technically a self-coup of, of an authoritarian-minded leader who wanted to stay in power. Um, but uh, the GOP actually, if you look at the history of authoritarian parties and the leader party relationship, which is uh, what I do in my book, the GOP is actually operating like in a liberal party now. And one of the things it's doing, it's like history is being made before our eyes because this is such a, you know, a, a storied 
historic party and it's remaking itself in real time um, to you know, cast out anybody who is for the rule of law, like the Liz Cheney's, uh, Adam Kinzinger's, but who is it bringing in is very interesting. It's bringing in kind of lawless uh, and violent individuals who will, you know, be okay with supporting a kind of having a political culture that will support whatever form of autocracy they're trying to install here. So if you take a big pictures. I'm a historian, so I step back and you see how they've evolved. And, you know, there was always a GOP sympathy for extremists, for members of Oath Keepers, but now the extremists are the politicians. So we have people like Mark Fincham, who was uh, an Arizona state representative, and he's a self-proclaimed Oath Keeper. Well, that's been really good for his career now, the way the yeah. GOP is going. So now he's the official GOP nominee for Secretary of State of Arizona. So that's just one example. Well, let me ask you, how did the Republican, as a historian, I've, I've often, you know, uh, look, I, I, I'm, I'm an amateur historian. I, you know, I studied history. It was a minor of mine in college. I, I'm not going to say like some people, you know, the hell with you. I, I saw a few videos on uh, YouTube, so I know more than you. You you have the background in it. How did the GOP get from being the party of Lincoln, the party of Teddy Roosevelt and progressives, to the <clears throat> part where they are now the part of, of an autocracy? I mean, between, between, between Teddy Roosevelt, between that time for the GOP and this time of the GOP, what happened? Well, I actually am not an American historian, and that has been an asset in my analysis um, because what I study is I started out studying Italian fascism and fascism more generally. Then my book is about autocracy from Mussolini yes. through Pinochet in Chile. So it's global. And so my, my, um, my niche has been, uh, I didn't ever write about America. And then when I saw Donald Trump come on the scene with the loyalty oaths and the rallies, and I realized very early before he took office, well before he took office, that he was going to be a totally different kind of leader. And the GOP was already, uh, was ready for such a leader, right? That So that I can say that, you know, the Tea Party and the kind of um, popularity of the right wing media universe, um, they were already um, kind of at getting outside a democratic political culture. But what happens in history, the reason I focused on these leaders, uh, strongmen, is somebody like Trump comes along and, and kind of um, creates this big tent for all the extremists to come in. And he also subjected the party to a kind of authoritarian discipline. So the big point is that Trump was different than any other leader of any party in the history of America, because he really is an authoritarian. That's why he's always talking about, you know, China. And, and he, he told his John Kelly that he sees himself like Hitler. Why don't the generals obey him? So any autocrat, left or right, communist or fascist, is okay with him. So, so he took the GOP and he kind of subjected it to these authoritarian dynamics. And they were ready for that. Um, and their base was ready for that. And, and so that's how it was basically a process that was 
heading toward this, but it got hugely accelerated because of this figure. And when, and when we talk about that, uh, hugely accelerated, this happened, I mean, the, and the reason why I asked the question that I, I posed is because even up until, and, and I, forgive me for, I, I know you're not a, a student of history of America, but some of the things you point to in, Ameri in, in your book remind me of Pinochet and Mussolini, uh, Trump does. And some of the things that he did, I think the groundwork, as you show in your book, there is a groundwork that is laid prior to the to the person taking over, right? Yeah. So, so in our case, it was uh, after, I always go back to after we Dwight D. Eisenhower, it was already the seeds were coming into the American psyche and the Republican and uh, party. And Nixon took advantage of that with his Southern strategy. Reagan set the table that we've been moving that way for 40 years in the Republican Party. And then it looks like it's overnight, but it's actually the foundations for that have been laid for many years, yes? Yeah, they have been. And, and these, these kind of leaders, uh, wherever they are, they know how to take all the strands of a liberalism. Um, so when I talk about, you know, Donald Trump, having this big tent. He brought in all the racists, all the Confederate people who go around with Confederate flags. He brought in the former Tea Party people. He brought in neo-Nazis, all the different kinds of extremists. And we saw on January 6th, I call it his uh, bespoke army of thugs because he couldn't yes. get the military to play. So if you look who was there on January 6th, it was like a, the full spectrum of extremists all representing um, different parts of American history of, of illiberalism or racism. You had sovereign sheriffs, you had, you know, oath keepers, you had uh, active duty and retired law enforcement in the military. You had all kinds of people. You had 57 GOP officials. Um, yeah. <laughs> like we always forget to talk about that. They, they were there. They were there. So, so he, he was, and that's why he focused so much on, on, you know, history and, and he was trying to kind of um, create this different America that built on all the traditions of, of extremism and liberal and illiberalism that it, already existed. And they all do that. And it's unfortunately very, very effective. Yeah. And as you know, he plays, he flips the switch, right? Cause he, he'll use the, the tenets of democracy to defend autocracy, uh, telling us that actually, you know, the people who are, are trying to hold the democracy together, they're the ones that are, are illegitimate mm -hmm. and only his people are the patriots. Where do you see that in history? Yeah, this business, uh, it's, it's like everything I wrote and all the case studies, it's like, I, I'm I'm sitting there, not really literally, but with a checklist going, oh yeah, now this is happening. Now this is happening here. Um, so one of the oldest things that Mussolini was talking about literally a hundred years ago uh, was that the real tyranny, the real dictatorship is liberal democracy. Right. And Putin says it and Orban says it. And we saw even recently how uh, Biden's very strong speech in defense of democracy calling out the MAGA Republicans the right-wing media made it into, you know, him as a Hitler figure. And right. so it's very effective that um, that right-wing extremists will always say that liberal Democrats are trying to take away your rights. 
that democracy is a tyranny it's, and and the the form of that the the slogan today is it's kind of cancel cancel culture it's going to cancel you but i have a picture in my book which i got from a german archive of hitler in 19 mid 1920s so he was banned for his hate speech from public speaking by a few german states and the nazis had put out these posters that made political capital off of that, which showed literally Hitler with his mouth taped shut. So they, so these guys, you, you said before that the groundwork is laid before they come to power. You, if you're trying to figure out who's going to be a strongman, it's the ones who, while they're campaigning, they start making themselves out to be the victims because they're trying to tell the real truth. And the establishment won't let them tell the truth. And everything's rigged, right? The state is rigged against them. Right. And that's what Hitler did, Mussolini did, and Duterte did it. They Bolsonaro did it, and Trump did it. And we're still having this discourse go on most recently because of the FBI search where Trump said the deep state's against me. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> law and order is against him, but that's another story. Well, what, what do you... Uh, what did you a think of Biden's speech? I thought it was really great um, for two reasons. Uh, I thought he was very smart to to say that you know these are the MAGA Republicans and this is what they're doing, but that not all Republicans are 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 like this, and that's important as a bridge building tactic. But the other thing I really liked that didn't get as much attention was it was a speech about hope. And it was a speech where over and over again, he said that you are not powerless. You have the power to respond to this, to react to this, to defend democracy. And that's very important because what people like Trump and his GOP enablers do is they try and, you know, they have this kind of psychological warfare and people can feel very hopeless. Like it's just useless to even try. There's too much, you know, going on. And effective democracy protection is keeping up hope, not as a kind of deluded, you know, everything's fine, denial thing, but actually as a way of saying, don't, don't detach yourself, don't go off and be depressed. You have the power to vote, you have the power to mobilize. And so I really love that about the speech. He, he's very, he's very smart. And Unlike Trump, who, you know, only listens to his own, you know, sycophants, Biden has been meeting with historians, with all kinds of democracy experts. He listens, he gets intake, and then his speeches reflect that. Do you think, uh, I've said, and I've heard it said, and I've questioned many people who believe that this fall, these elections are going to determine the fate of the U.S. for the next easily 30 to 50 years. Um, do you agree? And, and how do you feel about the coming elections? Yeah, I, I do agree. And it's very hopeful that we've seen such um, interesting patterns in voter registration, um, a huge uptake uh, in, in women registering. Um, I think that because of what happened with Roe, the message is getting through. And, and also the more extreme and open about the extremism the Republicans are, and the more toxic Trump seems to be. I mean, it's not so popular to be going after the FBI. A lot of <laughs> a lot of rank and file, you know, Republicans uh, probably respect like the FBI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they like all the things it does. He's going after all the institutions. So various things 
uh, could arrange themselves in ways that um, that have a that make these elections very strong for Democrats. However, I am also I am worried that um, what the GOP would like to do, the more uh, lawless, um, violent part of it, is make the elections um, into a moment of chaos, into a moment of uh, political violence. Um, so that people not only have lost faith in the system of elections, but they're too scared to vote. And the perception that democracy doesn't work. This is, all this is about, and this goes back to Mussolini, about getting people to believe that democracy doesn't work, that elections are just, it's useless to have them. And so you should have a kind of authoritarian leader. So I am, I am worried about that. That's one of the things that you point out is I've, I've knowing my and I feel bad because Mussolini was formerly in my business before he went into he was. politics. He was a, a publisher, but he knew well how to play on uh, public sentiment. I I often wonder if um, Donald Trump also knows that. And oh yeah, do you think that Donald Trump is is would you compare him to a modern? Mussolini or do you think he's more like Pinochet? No, he's he's uh, he's got a lot of similarities with Mussolini. In fact, some of the most successful, um, uh, you know, strongman types were in the media or in entertainment like Berlusconi. Berlusconi is another one. He didn't wreck democracy, but he, he was extremely corrupt and authoritarian and he was best friends with Putin. It was a lot of similarities to Trump. But what they are able to do is communicate with people in a new way, whatever technology is around at the time. So Mussolini had newsreels and Hitler did, you know, the radio, um, Trump used Twitter. They are able to establish bonds with people and uh, through the media, a direct connection. And so that's very important, this direct connection. And they're also showmen. Um, yes. They're extremely good actors. And Trump was was groomed for this. He did reality TV. And they tell people what they think people want to hear. And that's very important, this telling people what they want to hear. And also, because they have zero moral code, they'll just say whatever the heck they need. They will be who you want them to be. And they will say what needs to be said. And that's why it's, it's very interesting. If you bookend it, Trump and Mussolini, they both ended up with these like crazy eclectic constituencies where you've got housewives and you know women out there and you've got gangsters and like neo-Nazis and priests and all kinds of people. I mean, both of them were the most impious criminal you know, individuals and both of them had major religious institutions saying that they were put there by the will of God. Yes. How do you, so, <laughs> that's, yeah, the will of God. Uh, so how do you talk to someone who is a fervent believer in Trump? Can you deprogram them? Can you reach them? Without, uh, you know, I, what I see sometimes on the left is an overcompensation uh, of, of uh, I don't know how to put it, but, you know, they're so uh, vitriolic in their response. Yeah. I can't talk to anybody. I'm not going to talk to them. But if you're going to make headway, you're going to have to convince some of these voters to come back into the fold. How do you do that? Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I 
I've written a couple of essays in my, uh, I have a newsletter, Lucid, on threats to democracy, a Substack newsletter. And I've written about Once this. Again, where can we see it? Or we'll plug it. Uh, it's called Lucid, L-U-C-I-D. Uh, it's a Substack newsletter, so lucid at lucid.substack.com. Thanks. And it's all about threats to democracy, but also uh, about authoritarian cults and disengagement. So it's very interesting because whether you come from my perspective, where I've studied this in history and also the present, or people who study disinformation and people who study cults, all of us arrive at the same conclusion where it may be very tempting to just say, you know, screw you, sod off. Yes, sod off, as they say in England. <laughs> yeah. um, goodbye. No, sod off, would you? I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not speaking to you anymore. I can't deal with you. That's not the right thing to do if your aim is to, um, you know, have them come back to reality, get them out of their disinformation tunnel. You have to kind of stick around. And if it's a family member or close, somebody you're close to, you have to stick around and talk about other things and um, and, and also broach, you know, politics, but not just um, not just cast them off because then they'll just feel more shamed and more um, angry at you and go further into their own um, kind of extremist pods. Or as and, I say, climb inside their own asshole. <laughs> yes, you could put it that way. <laughs> but all the studies show that so that if you still have a relationship with them, because sooner or later, these people will realize they've been duped, you know, that Donald Trump was ripping them out, the big ripoff, right? He, right. They're going to realize it sooner or later, because the people who the sad thing that's actually so sad, the people who are most ripped off uh, and also economically are, are the followers in a way. Uh, because yes. certainly with Trump, who's not sending people to, to camps to die, right? Um, yeah. So, yet. Yeah. So they will come out of it, but you have to be there. Um, I My own mother, who lives in England, uh, was radicalized during the pandemic by watching RT, Russia Today. And she became like a total extremist, and she used to be conservative, Um Tory conservative. And, and it was very frustrating to, to speak to her. And she would say that I was perpetrating fake news, but I kept at it. And gradually, um, she's come around now to, she doesn't hate Biden anymore. She doesn't like Putin anymore. <laughs> and well, that's an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying it was all me. It was mostly that RT got taken off the air. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but the fact that I kept I, I, at first I was like, I can't deal with her. I'm not speaking to her anymore. And then I thought, no, you're, you're doing exactly what you're telling people is the wrong thing to do. Right. So that's what I would say to people um, because they will wake up. Uh, often it's not until there's been horrible ruination for the nation, but right. they will wake up and you will be there to help bring them back into reality. If we've not been sent to death camps, but that's, that's another, that's another. Yes. Yeah, so well, my father thinks I'm going to be arrested any day now. So yes, that's a different. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, during, look, during Trump's administration, he tried to yank my press pass. I had death threats oh. on a daily basis. I had people bust out the windows of my car. I got threatened at the January 6th uh, insurrection. This is all real for those people who think that it's not. I, 
I stick around simply because, well, I'm stubborn and I'm, you know, and I don't know any better, but I, I stick around and try to point out repeatedly. And, and I ask, usually I ask questions. Why do you like him? Why do you think that it is the way it is? Why do you think the press is your enemy? And once you break it down and speak with them, oftentimes it's out of fear with no factual mm -hmm. basis whatsoever. Just the That's right. And, it's, and it's fear. And, and um, there's also a dynamic uh, that's been well studied is when people start to realize that they've been duped or that what they've been espousing is not really a good thing. Um, at first they can dig their heels in even more if you try and shame them, because one of the yes. biggest things people are afraid of is being humiliated. Right. So as hard as it is, you have to kind of tread lightly if you see them starting to come out of it. And, and then they will um, make progress on their own if you are around to help them. Um, it, it's a very delicate process and, uh, but you know, it's like one soul at a time. <laughs> yeah. One soul at a time, sweet Jesus. <laughs> We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, let's take a look at what you think the United States would look at, like if the GOP is successful or if they have their civil war that they want. So think about that while we take a short break and we'll be right back. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. Seriously. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, it's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam, and I'm just asking, uh, Ruth, I'm going to ask you this. Um, again, the name of the book, If you before we go forward, you want to plug the book and where we can see you. Um, it's called Strong Men. Yes. Yep. It's called Strong Men, uh, Mussolini to the Present. It's published by Norton. And there's a new edition with a pap uh, paperback with an epilogue on January 1st. Uh, you can also uh, look at my Substack newsletter called Lucid. That's lucid.substack.com. And that's where I write about threats to democracy uh, and the GOP. And I've actually seen you on MSNBC. And I'm on MSNBC, uh, sometimes CNN and Jim Acosta's show, uh, mostly MSNBC. I'm on pretty Jim's much Jim's a good week. guy. He's a, he's a friend of mine. I, I, I really like Jim. I, I hope he's doing well at CNN with all the changes. That's, yeah. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what happens this fall. If the Republicans are successful and wrestle back the, uh, uh, the, the Congress, both the house and and the senate what do you suspect the next moves will be well we can look to uh some of the because biden is in power now it's mm -hmm. been a lot of the actions been at the state level 
And I've been uh, watching and writing about uh, Ron DeSantis. Um, been writing about him for a while now because he's been making Florida into a kind of mini autocracy. Yeah. So we could we could look to, or and there's also Texas. Uh, it's another very aggressive uh, remaking of political culture, remaking of laws. So we can expect to see some of those things scaled up. Um, and one of the things DeSantis is doing is, you know, going after businesses. Um, and it's not just Disney. Uh, it, it's also, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to say he has all these uh, laws where, you know, you can't have diversity training in companies. You can't talk about this. And so, all of the rhetoric about the Republicans, you know, defending free speech against cancel culture, it's actually the opposite. What they're doing is DeSantis and others are trying to have the government interfere, just using the business example, to tell business what it can and cannot do and talk about. Well, and so there actually been a lot of lawsuits in Florida that I, I wrote a CNN piece recently because we don't we're not it's not covered enough. There have been a lot of lawsuits by businesses in Florida against the DeSantis government. So we can expect uh, we can expect ideologically motivated attacks on sectors of society that might think that they are not going to be touched. That and, and DeSantis, I will say that he is one of the most aggressive proponents of limiting free speech to the point where reporters have to, if he doesn't yeah. like them, they're not allowed to cover him. And I am constantly amazed that we put up with that. Uh, but that's that's a story about how the media sucks and we could spend an hour on that alone uh, <laughs> easily. Uh, in fact, I wrote a book about that, but that's it. It's, but that, but what I, what I want to know is, do you think that if they, if the GOP isn't successful, they threaten, there's threats of civil war. Uh, do you think that's a real threat? It's, you know, like all these things, um, the, the way things were in past centuries is not how they happen today. Yes. So many people from Barbara Walter who wrote a book about civil war, Malcolm Nance, people who know about these things, um, all conclude that any kind of civil war would not look like, it's not gonna be two giant industrial strength armies. The it's more of an ins insurrection or insurgency as Malcolm Nance has been calling it for a long time where you have low level violence. And there are precedents for this in Italy in the 1970s and 80s, it was called the strategy of tension. And it was right wing and some left wing, um, they would put bomb threats or actual bomb explosion explosions. They would kidnap people. And all of these things have happened in America. Think about Michigan and, and yeah. the governor. And the idea is to make uh, everyday life uh, a place of fear and chaos and to um, create an appetite for authoritarian rule because people can't take this low level uh, but constant turmoil. Now the wild card, no other country in the whole world in peacetime has this, is guns. The American, that no other place are there 400 million guns in circulation in private hands. No other place has, people have private arsenals. Uh, January 6th, you know, had its 
it got its bite from people being able to be armed. So a lot of the um, precedent, uh, the precedents for insurgencies and things, um, it's hard to extrapolate for them to America, except that we're looking at a potential for you know, much greater violence. We've already seen kind of lone actor, you know, uh, racially motivated uh, mass killings, but we have mass shootings every single day. Right. So, I mean, I, I've said, well, I, I agree with you, by the way. I, I don't think that we would see mobilized armies. I think you would see just uh, what we have now uh, maybe stepped up with crazies going, you know, nuts and trying to, uh, well, and then an organized attempt to subvert elections at the local level by putting people who yes. who support the authoritarians in to make sure that the right people are placed in office. Well, one thing you asked me, what would it look like? And it's already looking like um, I've been following. Um, so when you think of uh, a military junta, you think of elections where people are terrified and people with guns are, you know, looking over their shoulders, making sure they vote for the right person, right? Well, that's already happening um, in that you have armed, you know, people who are, you know, coming to school board votes, to any kind of local government. Uh, you have these armed kind of bands and thugs coming in. And again, they're able to be armed because of our gun laws. But I've been following the poll watchers. These are supposed to be in the uh, pre-radicalized GOP, they were, this was a civil service that you did. Um, you watched the polls. Now, um, dozens of states have passed laws, and here we have, they, this goes together with open carry in some states, giving poll watchers the ability to stand just a few feet away from people to watch what they're doing, and they could be armed in some states. Um, and so there's a lot of legislation on the books in states to make uh, voting potentially a threatening and and frightening experience. Um, and this will this what already states? goes again all kinds of voting. What um, states specifically? Uh, Texas has been very active. Uh, it has, and Wisconsin uh, passed uh, a law where you know the poll watchers can be just three three feet away, able to see and hear what what the voter does. And so imagine you have Proud Boys, you have just, or militia, local known militia members who are armed to the teeth and we see them all over the place already. And you're coming to vote and they're, they're quote, watching you. So right. this is, this reminds me again from where I come from. Okay, this is totally authoritarian. And I also look at what these states try to do. And there was the Texas, Texas, they even try, they, they try to have, it didn't pass or they took it out, uh, that drive-by voting, that a poll watcher could come into your car if it had, you know, four people or more, This if the car was large enough, but you, you'd have to vote with a poll watcher sitting in your car. Now imagine if that person's armed, what, yeah. What's that? What is the reference for that? It's not democracy. No, no, that's no, that's back to Mussolini. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let, let me ask you if um, one of the things I noticed recently, you, you've covered, uh, uh, you were talking about when societies break down, sectarian violence, you, you've spoken about uh, Lebanon. 
as as an area of that. Tell me how that sectarian violence could that kind of violence and that kind of uh, sectarian thinking invade the U.S. Could we end up that way? We could. I mean, there there's a very good film I recommend people watch uh, called West Beirut, made by a Lebanese filmmaker who lived through the civil war. And it's about how the civil war started and was lived at the level of neighborhoods. And it's through the eyes of, of, of teenagers. Um, and all of a sudden people found that whether you were Muslim or Christian, you space got territorialized based on what side you were on. And all of a sudden the streets filled up with men with guns. Now, here's where we already have men with guns everywhere. And you go to Walmart, there's some dude with a huge assault rifle. That's not normal in other places. And it certainly wasn't normal in Beirut uh, until the Civil War came out. So we are in a, we're starting this from a totally different place. But yeah, the key we're is that- we down the road. Yeah. And the other thing that um, you see from these episodes of societal breakdown is, in order to get people to um, be okay with political violence, either just accepting it or actually like willing to do it, you have to get them to see themselves as in mortal danger. You, the enemy is going to get us. So I'm very concerned because the GOP has been um, working overtime for years to get people into that state. And, and Trump himself is really good. He's a good demagogue for that. In fact, on January 6th, he said, if we if we don't fight like hell, we're not going to have a country anymore or a great replacement theory where you're being told all the time that, you know, that white people are not going to they're going to be extinct. <laughs> so there's all these different discourses going around by the GOP telling people that they've got to be OK with violence because otherwise they're going to be obliterated. So that yeah. is. Yeah, go ahead. No, no go ahead. I was just going to say the 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 studies I've I've done because I, I teach the Lebanese Civil War uh, in some of my classes where where people started to see um, their local baker or their librarian as enemies as political enemies, and when that happens, that's when goodwill breaks down, trust breaks down, and you can be your your communities can turn into sites of violence. And that's that's a that's a lesson from the the Lebanese Civil War. Do you think that's a lesson we've learned? Well, we some of us didn't think we ever had to learn because it seemed totally remote from our reality. Um, and now it's actually happening if you read the local news. Yeah. Um, we get these small news items like. I saw something on CNN. I didn't even bookmark it uh, that uh, I don't even know where it was, but the small town, they had a school board election and armed men came like proud boys or somebody. So that's an example. Uh, and this is going on all over the place. So we, we are, we're not even learning a lesson. We're just trying, I've been trying, I'm on, on TV so much and writing so much. I'm trying to get people to have a framework for this. Yes, and to say that it's that. it's not leading anywhere good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and that's so we will learn the lesson someday. I just hope that 
we don't have to go through too much hell um, before that. Do you have hope that we can go through without going through too much hell? Or do you think that we're uh, consigned to mediocrity and, and violence for the next umpty dumpty billion years? No, I think we can. Um, I think that it's it's very important for uh, for people to be reaching independent voters and to find what part of the problem is the two party system because the people who maybe don't they're not into this extremism they don't like seeing campaign ads with GOP candidates with assault rifles but they don't have anywhere else to go they don't have another party so um so that's that's a bit of a structural problem but we have to keep reaching out to these people because we can't give up um i agree with and that. just let the extremists take over do you think and and so give me your gut feeling you think the extremists will take over this fall or do you think that we're we'll be okay after november i i never lose faith in the american people and i I published an essay in Lucid a few months ago about the, well, one about the importance of hope and the other that we've had two really good examples of mass nonviolent organizing affecting elections. One was the Women's March, which nobody talks about anymore, but right. was the biggest, until that point, it was the biggest uh, nonviolent demonstration in American history. And it directly led to uh, thousands of women running for office in the midterms. And it changed the face of the Democratic Party. And then of course we had Black Lives Matter protests. So between 15 and 22 million people participated in a Black Lives Matter event. That's an enormous amount of people. And of course it directly affected turnout and we got rid of Trump. So we can do this. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, and look, and I, I remind everyone that Trump never won in any election that he ran, never won the popular vote. That's right. <laughs> so it, I, the people that are screaming the loudest are in a minority. They want the minority to rule over the majority. And I always say, look, at it, it, this fall, I don't know that the issues matter so much because those who are going to vote are going to, I mean, they do matter to those who are, are on the fence about where to go. But they are less on the fence these days, it seems, because of probably the most bipartisan issue in the United States. And that was the gift that was actually given to us by the Supreme Court by right. overturning Roe v. Wade and giving us Dobbs. Republican women, American, you know, every, the, look, everyone in America is that's the most bipartisan issue, no matter where you fall. So I, I think it's been a great boost to get people out to the polls. But Look, let's be honest. If you live in a country where you believe 50% voter turnout is a is a large number, you're screwed because doesn't matter, minorities can win. And the majority, so there are more registered Democrats than Republicans. If the Democrats show up, no matter how hard it is to vote, they do it. Uh, the Republicans are done, no matter if they can gerrymander or not. But I don't, I think they play to that fear to, to keep you away. Yeah. And also the genius of the big lie, uh, which you know Trump devised for himself, but it didn't work for him. But any politician can now be a mini Trump and just decide not to leave office, even if they're defeated. 
uh, and they could be backed up by armed extremists. Um, so we we have to have so, such a huge voter turnout that it compensates for all of the trickery uh, that is going to come our way. So I, I am cautiously optimistic, I would say. I, I like those words. And on cautiously optimistic, we'll take another break and then we'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q podcast. That's J-A-T-Q podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, it's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, uh, Brian Karaman, with me today. Fascinating conversation, Ruth. I want to thank you so much. Uh, the name of the book is, once again, uh, Strong Men. And yep, Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, uh, with a new edition. Uh, talks about January 6th and uh, Putin. And I uh, also publish a newsletter, uh, Lucid at Substack, so it's lucid.substack.com, and it's all about threats of democ to democracy, and you can see me on MSNBC. Where do you teach, by the way? Teach at uh, New York University, and I teach uh, history, propaganda, authoritarians, World War II, um, teach a cool course called On War and Cinema. Um, uh -oh. So, Well, tell me yeah. about, oh, now, now, uh, all right, War and Cinema. What's tell me what the uh, what what's the syllabus in that class? Uh, it's my favorite class to teach. We go th from World War One uh, um, up to like drone warfare, and we talk about how, for example, drone warfare. What does it do to the war film? Um, ah. so we we use eye in the sky, um, and so how do you make a war film that's interesting and compelling about drone warfare? which it is not, it is not, doesn't have much action. So we, no. we, we do stuff like that. And that's where we talk about the Lebanese civil war, of course, world war II, um, uh, Iraq. Um, you know, I do, uh, uh what's the, what was the God with Bradley Cooper about snipers, American. Yeah. American. Yeah. Well, yeah. What's, what's your favorite world war II film? Uh, it changes all the time. So, um, and sometimes they're the films that work best with students. Um, I like this resistance film that's Italian um, called Rome Open City. Oh, yeah. um, it, it's very meaningful right now uh, about urban warfare, um, uh, Rome under German occupation and the resistance. It's really, it's a really a cool film. What do you um, think is the most accurate film you've seen about war? You know, this weird film, which is a total downer, um, well, because most war films should be downer, but yeah. <laughs> from 1943, an American film called Baton. Oh, my about, God. Yeah. And it it's a little bit surreal, but it's um, and it's very it ends in this kind of with the somebody getting overwhelmed and just, you know, firing away at the Japanese and just going to be killed. Uh, doing the heroic thing, but it's it's very realistic about um, the mindset of people who are in war. 
I find. Yeah, I thought it did a pretty good job of uh of before it was PTSD, but you know, it was being called yes. shock. I thought that was so we yeah, the course actually follows um we have all these th sub themes and we follow the way that um trauma, war trauma is shown on screen. And it's not really shown on screen much uh, until you get way into the post-war. So Bataan is very interesting. It's a, it's a bit of a psychological thriller, thriller in that way. Yeah, um, that was one of the ones that I saw when I was younger that uh, that first introduced me to the, you know, being shell-shocked or being you know, PTSD was Patton. And yes. I slapped a couple of soldiers. Uh, in real life, it was two. And in the movie, it was one. Tim Considine played the soldier. And... Um, you know, and to apologize, Patton comes out and says, you know, I just thought I'd stand out here and let you guys see if I'm as big a son of a bitch as everyone thinks I am. But the idea that um, that a, a man tortured by what he had to go through was less than a man was what uh, I remember most about that. And Americans, it's American Sniper, right? With yeah. Bradley Cooper. Yeah. That was one of the first pieces I did for CNN uh, in 2015. It was right around the time I started writing about Trump or before actually. And um, I talked about how the sniper becomes, you know, the, as, as somebody who targets and kills and can almost work alone. He has a spotter, but he's, it's, he, he was kind of the perfect hero for the counter uh, insurgency age. And whatever I said in this op-ed, um, it, 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 it struck a, um, it was not liked by, by snipers. So I, I woke up, I woke up the next morning and sometimes with CNN, you know, your piece has come out because of your inbox. Yes. Um, you know, they don't have time to tell you your piece has come out. Yeah. And so it's I the was, that lets you know. I was giving my daughter breakfast and I was like, oh, this, you know, you don't want to get in the bad side of snipers. But I, I, I was temporarily. Um, <laughs> Well, thankfully, they did nothing about it. <laughs> no. Um, so, World War One. What What would you What would you think is one of the better movies about World War One? Um, I I don't I don't know. I actually don't. Uh, this will sound strange, given that I'm just tell it we're talking about war films. I don't like on my free time. I don't like to watch war films. Oh, I don't blame you. So the the film I teach is a pacifist film, um, The Grand Illusion. It's a oh, French classic. That's a from good one. 1930s. What about Johnny yeah. Got His Gun? Yeah, that's that, good too. Yeah, that's a passive. <laughs> Some of the other, what I find disturbing, I guess, is the in the um, in in the desire to be real, to bring realism into movie uh, making. At certain films, I find disturbing, having been in uh, conflict zones. I find them damn disturbing to me. It, it almost bring, triggers memories that I prefer uh, I didn't yes. have. <laughs> so uh, I, I find realism is important, but the storytelling and the narrative is still, I, I appreciate that more than just getting the echo of a bullet correctly. Because that's a thing that just bothers the living hell out of me. Yeah, and there actually sound is really important and we don't think enough about um you know a lot of trauma uh ptsd is triggered by sounds yeah and it's been that way if you think of uh camp survivors uh holocaust camp survivors or others who can't uh hear a barking dog uh, like a german shepherd 
And American Sniper had a lot about sounds that trigger uh, traumatic episodes. Yeah. Um, so right so the realism, with... the realism of the whining of the bullets and uh, that's, that's part of the, the, the interesting thing about um, thinking about war films is that, you know, how, what is the point of the realism um, and how constructive or otherwise is it? Um, to, to the telling of the to narrative. The, yes. Right. So you like to keep hope alive. How do you do that? What's your, give me something in your personal day that you do. Is it listening to rock and roll music, painting, uh, painting something, reading, writing? What do you do to keep your hope alive? Um, I, I like to be in nature and I find having the perspective of nature, um, that renews itself very useful. I listen to a lot of electronica music, which people are always surprised. Um, <laughs> and I find that, um, it's, it's kind of a beat that kind of sustains you. I, I write pretty much only to electronica music. But I really like to, if I've been on TV, um, you know, when it's always talking about extremism and, and things that are kind of intense, I, uh, unless it's night, I hop off and I immediately go for a walk in the woods. Yeah, um, that's, a good, that's a good thing. I, I walk just that, A, it just wor it, it works off tension for me. That's, it just, I, I, I walk it out. But I have to ask you this, because you mentioned your mother. And you mentioned sodding off early, so <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna acknowledge the British in you for a second. Um, who's your favorite Beatle? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> do you I listen? Do not, know. My, not so much. My mother's actually Scottish, so. Um, uh, well, that's a whole I thing. Scotland. <laughs> I remember walking, in, I was in Scotland and I walked into the, um, I, I walked to where the crown jewels were in, in Scotland. And I was talking to the uh, guy who was guarding the crown jewels. And I said, has the queen of England ever been here to, you know, to take a look at him? But he goes, oh, no, <laughs> we wouldn't let her. <laughs> There's still a, a bit of an independent streak among the Scots. <laughs> That has oh, yeah. In, in fact, there's recurring, you know, they, they there are many people who want to have uh uh you know, they want to leave. They yeah, want to become independent, which is well, very Scottish. Yeah, that is, but isn't that also very human to break into our own tribe? Every we talk about tribalism today, and it's really tough to unify people when all they want is their own little tribe, is it not? It is. And, and actually, one of the things that, um, unfortunately, authoritarians do really well and demagogues is they they make people feel valued. They like Trump tells people, I love you. Yeah. You know, I love I love the leader of North Korea. I, I love, love you. Yeah. And and people are not used to having this language of emotion. And they and then he give them he gave them rituals. People love to wear the hats and chant locker up. And so going to the rallies, and it's the same with Hitler and stuff, going to the rallies becomes like this big party, um, yeah. this big joyous gathering, and including the joy of hating others, right? I've covered a lot of those, and you You did. You, you were there. Yeah. So this is a point that, um, that 
Democrats with a small d, uh, certainly you, the content would be different, but could take a take a nod from the use of um, having political occasions as as places where people come together and feel affirmed, um, because it's been it's been authoritarians who've known how to do that better. Um, so for for terrible purposes. Yeah, I, I've always said we have two parties in this country. One has no heart and one has no head. And the Democrats really don't have a head for this fight sometimes, it seems. But to your point earlier, I think Biden has listened and he is smarter than Trump. Yeah. And he uses emotion. He He's yeah, an emotional he guy. And yeah. he's suffered and he's not afraid to say he's suffered. So he's, I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, well, I look, to me, it was such a low bar to crawl over after Trump that, yes, <laughs> does he merit, as as a reporter, does he merit critical review? Yes. Yeah. The thing that people mistake is they think everyone deserves the same critical review. Donald Trump reserves, for me, the, the harshest critical review because he's not, he doesn't stand for democracy. He's a traitor to the ideals. He's an authoritarian. I get upset with Biden because he doesn't show up in front of the press more often. But I don't doubt that what he's done is fundamentally democratic and and in line with, oh, I don't know, the Constitution. So, yes, I'm a fan of that. I, I'm not a real fan of his communication staff. I think. He, yeah, he, I could. Orly. Of course, of course. But um, that's where I, I think that and and and, and we'll uh, I'll let you have a few final thoughts on this, but. I, I find that it's the Donald Trumps and it's the authoritarians who use the um, the need of people to to feel wanted and inclusive and included, uh, particularly those who have been on the outside uh, you know, because they're batshit nuts usually. But he brings them into <laughs> the fold into his tribe, and that's mm -hmm. his tribalism. And, and you referred to that earlier. Is and 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 the way to defeat it is to stick around for the for the, uh, uh, you know, for the full course and don't walk away. But final thoughts for you, how do you think the United States plays out in the next 20 years being cautiously optimistic as you are? 20 years out, I don't know. Um, <laughs> a lot is- Give me 20 days. <laughs> a lot, well, yeah, if, if we- this is, you know, this is a crossroads. Um, and if we weather this crisis um, and Trump is prosecuted and it, it's, uh, I I don't know how it will go with the GOP, which is again, when a party has decided to be an authoritarian party and has cast off all moderates, I don't know if it's salvageable. What, um, and you've, yeah, and the third party idea doesn't seem to fly. Well, they've got a political lightweight behind that. Andrew Yang is not exactly what I would call a political yeah. heavyweight. If they had someone who was had far more political clout, it might. In fact, you might yes. see a new GOP arise from it, you know, called the new GOP or the new Republicans. You, I could see any of that, but um, I, that's but remaining cautious, and I am one of those who like to remain cautiously optimistic. Um, the the Republican Party, I believe, is in its death throes. I, I don't see it being revived. Um, no, but then what 
what, what does that look like? Yeah, what okay. does what does that look like unless you start another party? And the optimistic part is that um, people that perhaps a more just politics could come out of this, that people, more and more people seem to be waking up to the fact that their rights are threatened. Because as so many say, and it's true, you know, it's not just that they take one right away, uh, they that's the beginning of that's more and more rights. And that's why I keep talking to people about DeSantis, where who thought he was going to go... He went after the Special Olympics. Who goes after the Special Olympics? He does to yeah. show that no one is exempt from his power. And so it's important to understand that like, they're not going to stop with one thing. And I think more people are realizing that. And yes. I'm hoping that what comes out of this is a newly aware electorate. <laughs> um, Your mouth that, and God's ears. That yeah, I, I God bless you. We'll we'll end on that hopeful note. Yes, that's that's that is where I you know I, at the end of the day I hope it's an awakening of the American uh, electorate to the fact that they have to be involved and vote. And it's got to be more than fifty percent at the polls. It's got to be seventy. It's got to be seventy-five percent. Exactly. Be an overwhelming number of voters that get their butts out and vote. And if if we do. Then the uh, uh, I, I feel the dem democracy, the republic will be fine. If we don't, we're screwed. It's that simple. And so, Great. with that said, Ruth, thank you so much. Once again, where can where can the book and and your uh, newsletter? Yeah, the book is uh, Strongman Mussolini to the Present, published by Norton. You can get it on Amazon anywhere. Uh, my newsletter is where I do my daily writing about threats to democracy. It's Lucid, L-U-C-I-D. Uh, dot substack.com and you can catch me uh, frequently on MSNBC. Thank you so much, Ruth, for being here. My name is Brian Karam. It's Just Ask the Question. We'll catch you next time. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Question's newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast.